Excellent. This morning, I want to talk to you uh, about the subject of lost and found. Um, I don't know if you've ever lost anything uh, or if you've ever walked into like the local uh, paper shop and things like that, or you've seen on a lamppost one of these lost and found posters. Anybody ever seen one? Yeah? I had a little trawl around the deep, dark depths of the internet, um, and I found what are some of my favorite lost and found posters. Um, this one, good start, lost uh, colostomy bag, last seen in the ball pit at McDonald's. Unpleasant. Lost pet guinea pig. A little bit of a, a problem with, you know, the drawing's not great. Uh, guinea pig, you don't spell it like that, but it says, he answers to the name of Maximus, Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix Legions, law servant to the true emperor Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and he will have his vengeance in this life or the next. Um, there you go. Uh, this guy uh, is very upset about his missing floppy disk drive. Um, floppy disk drive, last seen on desk in my garage, uh, it tells you where, has been in my family for years. Sentimental value. Um, initials scratched on side, also gum. If you have or find, please return. Reward. Underneath, under the picture of the uh, disk drive, what kind of sick mind takes people's floppy drives? I don't care about the golf clubs or wheelbarrow. It's a wheelbarrow. But do the right thing. Please call Evan. I don't know uh, if this was uh, from the Rogers household. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, and the next one, Rich. Missing. My imaginary friend, Steve. Picture taken three years ago. Last seen March 21st. Frequents discount sushi bars and poker raves. If you've seen him, tell him Vince is sorry about the ice cream and to come home. Um, lots of people seem to have taken the number off the bottom of that one. There we go. I didn't lose anything, nor find anything, nor am I selling anything. I hope you're well. I like that one. <laughs> Have you seen these droids? Uh, and if you take any of the slips off the bottom, it says, these are not the droids you're looking for. Um, there you go. Uh, and I think maybe, is it the last one coming up now? Hello. Is it me you're looking for? It's my personal favorite. Um, but there you go. And it goes on to give lyrics to that song all the way through it. Right, so you may wonder where I'm going with this. Uh, I'm going to talk to you actually this morning about parables, uh, and we're going to look at Luke 15. So, what? We'll just wait until you've got some remorse. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to talk about parables, we're going to look at Luke 15. But I, first of all, I want to talk a little bit about what parables are. Okay, they're these little stories that Jesus told, but there's so much more than stories. There's so much more than just little moral tales. They're designed to really poke around in our heart and our spirit. And they're designed to challenge us in different ways at different times. A lady called Amy Jill Levine, in her book, Short Stories by Jesus, said this. Jesus told parables because they serve as keys that can unlock the mysteries we face by helping us ask the right questions. How to live in community. How to determine what ultimately matters. How to live the life that God wants us to live. They're Jesus' way of teaching. And they're remembered to this day, not simply because they're in the Christian canon, but because they continue to provoke, challenge, and inspire 
just to let you know, the Christian canon is not some like great evangelism gun. It just means the kind of the stuff that's passed down and written down. Uh, canon with one N, not two. Jesus didn't name the parables that we find uh, in Luke 15. Neither did Luke who wrote them down. Uh, somebody tagged it on later and gave us little uh, headings. And in lots of places in the Bible, that's really helpful to see those headings and it helps us to go through stuff. Maybe in the parables, it's not always so helpful because it kind of gives us something to focus on to start off with. And before we've even started reading, um, we've got in our heads what it's going to be about. And maybe the titles that we've got don't always help us out quite so much. But I'm going to read to you to start off with uh, the parable of the lost sheep, as it's called. Um, it's a one in a hundred story, okay? All right, remember that as we go on. Starts off like this. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 religious people who do not need to repent. Okay, that first thing when Jesus is telling the story. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? I want to tell you, Libby's thought of a song for later. I want to tell you that I'm not entirely sure that everybody will have been going, yes, yes, that is what I'd do. If I lost one of my sheep, I'd go and I'd leave the 99 other ones just out in the open country and I'd go off and I'd go and find this other one. And as it goes through the story, I'm not entirely sure they're thinking, yes, when I find that sheep, I would joyfully place it on my shoulders. I imagine most shepherds, if they'd lost a sheep and then found it, would be a little bit annoyed that they'd had to go off and find it. And then when he comes home, he says, let's have a party. Let's have a party and celebrate that I've found the sheep. Do you know what? I think a lot of people would have been saying, you know what? One out of 100 sheep is pretty much an acceptable loss for a shepherd. You know, why risk leaving 99 wandering around? He could get attacked by wolves and bears and that kind of thing, mountain lions, and go off and find that other one, the one that's wandered off. I think that first thing we have to think is that maybe Jesus isn't just expecting everybody to nod along. isn't expecting everybody to say, oh, yeah, of course, Jesus. Of course we do that. But he goes on at the end to say, well, that's that's what the kingdom's like. That we're rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. More than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Do you know what? I was thinking about this party that the shepherd throws at the end. Right? I don't know if you've ever been to a party without food. Anybody ever been to a party without food? 
Was it rubbish? <laughs> yeah, right. Parties without food tend to be pretty bad. I imagine that the shepherd, to provide p- food for this party, probably had to kill a sheep, uh, leaving him probably uh, with 99 anyway. You know, maybe it wasn't the one that he'd been and found, or maybe it was. But that might have happened. There's this disproportionate cost of celebrating finding this sheep. Stuff that doesn't make sense to us humanly, but makes sense in the terms of the kingdom. These parables have strange decisions in them. Do you know what? We always think of this parable that we think that Jesus is the shepherd. And then kind of maybe us or our friend... um, is that sheep that's wandered off. And Jesus comes and finds us. And the 99 other sheep are the well-behaved people in church who just stay out of trouble and just go and sit down nicely waiting for him to come back. Now, I I just want to challenge you that I don't think this parable is as straightforward as that. I think parables challenge us in different ways at different times. And I don't think in this story that Jesus always wants us to think of him as the shepherd. Maybe this morning, Jesus wants you to think that actually you're in the place of that shepherd. And there's one, one person that you know that you could go and help find. But you're actually working with a lot of other people and is it worth your while? Do you want to make that effort? Think about that this morning. What if Jesus isn't the shepherd in the story? What if he's just giving us an example of how to behave? And at the end of these few verses, the status of the thing that was lost, which was the sheep, is that it's found. I want to move on to our next uh, parable. So, Rich, if you could put the next slide up. Again, it's really short, so just listen to this or you can find it in your Bibles if you want. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That one coin... One coin out of ten. This story is a one in ten story. The first one was a one in a hundred story. The value is increased. It's 10% of the total that this woman had, rather than the 1% that the shepherd had lost. One coin out of ten. Is the search worth it? You know, sometimes we think at home we've lost something, but we've got lots of other stuff. You know, maybe it's not that important. It'll turn up. Anybody ever done that? I can't find that, but it'll turn up, so I'm not going to look for it now. Maybe we think, again, it's a bit of a strange decision, that this woman's got nine silver coins. In terms of the time there, she's pretty well off. You know, she's still well off. Why bother spending all this time and effort? lighting a lamp, using precious oil up to find this coin. 
why bother? Some people say that actually this, this one coin might have been part of a 10 silver coin headdress that was kind of a wedding jewellery, almost equivalent of a wedding ring. So maybe Jesus is asking us to look at things and decide what value we place on them. Maybe maybe that one coin was something that was missing out of a whole thing. And without that whole thing, it wasn't really complete. Maybe if you think of a wedding ring with 10 diamonds in it and one falls out, I think we'd all look at it and say it wasn't complete. That one diamond was worth looking for. It was worth getting back where it should have been. So again, Jesus has told this story which follows straight on from the first one. And his listeners are probably sitting around going, okay, I get where you're going with this now. It's the same story you're just telling me in a different way. The values increased a little bit. But at the end of it, again, the status of the thing that was lost, this coin, is that it's found. She's pulled the carpets back. She's swept everywhere. She's got this oil lamp out. Uh, She's looked in all the dark corners. She's found this coin. And then again, there's a cost to her because she says, come and have a party with me. Come and celebrate. I found the coin that I had lost. Again, Jesus goes on. Starts saying, there was a man with two sons. And we're on the next slide. Now, starting a story with there was a man with two sons in, um, in Jewish culture at that time was a little bit like starting a joke with there was an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman. Because the Jewish audience would have been really familiar with stories that started with a man who had two sons. There was Adam, who had Cain and Abel. There was Abraham, who had Ishmael and Isaac. There was Isaac, who had Esau and Jacob. And there was Joseph, who had Manasseh and Ephraim. And in every instance, in every one of these stories, the Jewish audience would have known that the underdog, the younger son, was always the hero. Always the hero. But this son, in this story that we're going to read in a moment, he's not a righteous Abel. He's not a faithful Isaac. He's not a clever Jacob. He's not a strategic David or a wise Solomon. Instead, he's this kind of indulged, self-indulged, irresponsible, rebellious, tearaway of a kid who wants something that he's not yet entitled to. But nevertheless, we see in this story again that the value is increased. It's a one in two story. It's 50% of what the person has. And this time, it's not a possession. but It's a family member. It's his own son. So in verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Even when he said that phrase, his audience would have been thinking, okay, I kind of get where this is going to go. But no, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Which is a little bit like, if you think about it, and you may have heard before, the, the son saying to his dad, do you know what, dad? 
Uh, when you die, I'm going to get your money. Uh, you know, it would be good if you were dead because then I'd have your money. But I'm going to ask for what I should have when you'd be dead. The father doesn't kind of give him a slap and send him on his way. He divides his property between the two sons. Now, whether he divided it equally, some people are saying, some people say that it, it suggests the original text that he divided this money equally between his two sons. Now, in Jewish culture, the older son was entitled to more because he was intended to carry on the work uh, of the father. So we would have got a bigger portion of inheritance. Some scholars say that this text says that like, he divides it down the middle. So if that's true, then the people that Jesus was talking to would already be thinking that this father was a bit of an idiot. They would be thinking, well, what's he doing that for? What's he giving this kid who's a bit of a tear away? Um, this money now, why is he giving it that, that much? Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. I just stopped there to say for a Jewish man, it was not dignified to be running. Not to be running to his son. In their culture, he wouldn't have wanted to do that. Again, the readers would have been thinking, oh, this guy is making a fool of himself. You imagine kind of those long Jewish robes that they used to wear, and he probably got to hitch him up around his knees a little bit. And he goes running off, holding his kind of his robe up, and he's running down. And people are going to be thinking, this guy, this guy, what a fool, what a fool. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Remember, this is what he'd rehearsed, and there was more to come. In verse 22, it says, But the father said to his servants, so he interrupts him, cuts him off, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And at this point, those listening would have thought, okay, this is the end of the story because we've just heard the other two and it follows the same path. Something was lost, now it's found. What are we going to do at the end of that? We're going to have a party and celebrate it. But here comes the twist. Verse 25, meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. 
The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, my father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Do you know what? Maybe if the, the audience that had listened that first time to that story had had to come up with a name for this parable, they wouldn't have called it the prodigal um, son, the parable of the prodigal son. Maybe they'd have called it the prodigal of the irresponsible father. Because again, strange decisions. He gives him his inheritance. There's something else that the son says which would have sparked something in those Jews that were listening. In his rehearsed speech when he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. It echoes something that Pharaoh said just before he went back on it and tried to wipe out the nation of Israel by chasing after them with his army. Maybe those people would have been saying, you know, this kid's a good-for-nothing son. He's come back, he's rehearsed this speech, uh, and then his father's just given him everything again. strange decision to give him all this inheritance to look after him people would have been seeing that you know there's an indisputable truth that God seeks everybody with open arms and he welcomes them in and he wants to find them and he wants them to be in relationship with him but maybe maybe this story is not just about that I know I've always tended to see the older son as a bit of a whinger. Anybody else read this story and thought, yeah, that older son, he's just a moaner, isn't he? He's, his brother's back. He's kicking off uh, and being kind of really moody. But actually, if you think about it, he's perfectly entitled to his opinion. Do you know what struck me? In this story, everybody has been invited to this party. The servants and everyone. But the father didn't invite his older son. Forgot to invite him, left him out working in the fields. So many layers of this story. This older son was rightfully annoyed about what had gone on. He'd always done what his father had asked him to do. He'd never asked for anything that wasn't due to him. He'd watched his father have to sell everything up and go through loads of stuff to give out this inheritance. You know, that wouldn't have been a quick thing. Sometimes we think about this story as a quick thing. He said, Father, can I have half my inheritance? And he went, yeah, here you go. Well, inheritance doesn't work like that, does it? Because inheritance is getting what that other person owned. So his father would have had to sell half of all his stuff to give it to this son. Which means then that the father is living 
with the older son and on his money because he said he's divided it between the two. So the father's kind of left with nothing, but he's managing the money of his older son. When he sells this fattened calf, not only is it something that he hasn't given the son, but it's something that he's taken from him. Do you know what? In this story, I think that there's probably two lost sons. And the father realizes that the one is lost and out of touch. But he hasn't clocked that he's lost something much greater with this older son. When he says to him at the end that everything that I have is yours. I wonder if he's ever told him that before. I wonder if he's ever spoken to him about how much he values him and how much he loves him and how much he wants to give him good things. Do you know, we often get this kind of thing in school and I used to work in behavior work and you get the good kids who get on with their work all the time and they're well behaved and they're polite and then you get the naughty kids and they get pulled out and they get worked with individually and then they get taken on trips and stuff to try and help them improve their behavior. And you get these kids who sit in school and say, why should I behave myself? Because actually, the bad behavior gets rewarded. And I wonder if this older son felt like that. So Jesus has thrown this twist on the end of the third story. The other two ended with a party, with a celebration with this kind of reckless abandon of let's celebrate this thing that was lost that is now found. This one ends in a field with a father and his son trying to reconcile with one another while the other son is in the party with all the father's servants and their family friends. The status at the end of this story It's not that there was one thing lost and one thing found. It's that there were two things lost. One had come back and the other one was in process. We don't know what happened. It's like one of those films that ends and you never know what's going to happen. I don't know if you've seen The Italian Job and it just ends with that coach with the gold hanging over the cliff. That's where it ends. Who knows what happens at the end of that? Who knows what happened? Did the son come round? The older son. Did the father realize that maybe he hadn't treated him right? I think what Jesus wants us to look at is not just that he's a great father and that he welcomes us with open arms. Not just that he's like this great shepherd who will just go out no matter what the cost is to find the one single sheep that's lost he doesn't want to see us as just like this woman he says I'm going to find this coin and I'm going to make a big effort and I'm going to celebrate it he wants us to actually think to put ourselves in different roles in these stories to say who and what is lost to say how do we find them how do we react when they're found and actually how do we treat those that aren't lost You know, maybe there's a parallel between the 99 other sheep and the older brother. 
that they were just kind of left off in this story to fend for themselves. Let parables challenge you. As you read them, try and think about how originally people would have looked at them. Try and put yourselves in the different roles in the stories and don't just read it on its face value. Don't just read it in the easiest way that we can read them. I think God really wants us to be a people who seek out the lost. I'm convinced of that. But I also think he wants us to be a people who love each other when we're not lost, when we're found. He wants us to value each other. He wants us to live in great community with one another. We're going to pray. Lord God, I just thank you for speaking to us through your word. Lord God, challenge us. To, to put ourselves in different positions in the parables and the stories that you teach. Lord God, help us to seek the lost. Lord God, but help us not to neglect those that are found. Amen.